You may have noticed that in our credits and on the new On Being website, we are acknowledging the land on which we work and live. About 12 miles away from our studio in Minneapolis, the Minnesota River joins the Mississippi River at a place called Bedote in the Dakota language. One translation of Bedote is where two waters come together. The Bedote, where the Mississippi and Minnesota rivers concur, is an especially sacred site, the center of the world to the Dakota people. Bedote carries a complicated and layered history. In the many hundreds of years that the Dakota people have been on this land, and in the several hundred years since European settlers colonized it and made it the state of Minnesota. The On Being Project pays tribute to Dakota people, as well as all of the other Native American tribes who now call Minnesota home. We invite you to consider the land on which you live and the confluence of legacies that bring you to stand where you are. To learn more about our ongoing process at On Being, of critical reflection and conversation about this, you can visit onbeing.org slash land acknowledgement. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. Up next, my unedited conversation with writer, photographer, and art historian Teju Cole. There is a shorter produced version of this wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, it's so nice to have all of you here at On Being on Loring Park. And um, where's Kate Nordstrom? Where are you now? You're not speaking, but I am going to point at you. Um, we are so happy. This is our second event uh, in partnership with the Liquid Music Series of St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and Kate and her colleagues. And um, I think it's a beautiful friendship. So, And we've cleared out all of our desks for Teju Cole, <laughs> um, who I just heard. You've never been in Minnesota before? No, I haven't. You've no. been every place else. Right? Yeah. There are pictures in this book from every place <laughs> else. <laughs> so we're glad you're here. Um, oh, Chris said the cell phone thing. You know what I mean. Turn, the, turn it off. Turn off the volume. Uh, we are recording this. Um, and we are going to have about uh, 45, 50 minutes of conversation up here. Then we'll open it up for a conversation in the room. There will be a couple of microphones roving around. And we'll bring it back up here uh, to close out the conversation. So I think I will just begin. Um, Teju Cole wrote in, uh, I'll just speak to you, you wrote in, in your, in, so actually I wanted to say, I brought these two, and I think they're, are these your two most recent yeah, books? Yeah, these are the two most um, recent. Known and Strange Things, which are essays, um, some of which I had read elsewhere before they were in this book, and Blind Spot, which is um, photography and writing. <sighs> Um, and if you, I just want to say, if you f ever feel called to like read something or, cause you, there's, you use so much poetry. So if there's ever anything that you'd like to read while we're speaking, just say so. All right. Okay. You know, just if, if spirit moves you. Um, so in, in, I, I believe in the opening essay, um, 
in the in your book of essays, you you wrote, "I used to wonder what creative freedom looks like." And um, I have observed in life that often the things that we wonder about, and also the things, the qualities and pursuits that we long for, um, actually turn out to be the things we're suited for. Um, the things that are actually calling to us to do, we admire them in other people. Um, that it sometimes takes a while for us to grow into this realization. And all I could think when I read that sentence of yours is, is that you know you are creative freedom incarnate. Um, oh, thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have long admired Teju Cole as a writer, and I'll I'll you know confess that I was not as aware of um, of you as an art historian and a photographer. So that's a great discovery. Um, the subjects of his curiosity and multiple artistic pursuits range. Uh, through photography to poetry and literature, music and politics. Um, you will have musings on the Polish filmmaker Krzysztof Kislowski, together with Shakespeare, an Australian composer, a Malian photographer, and Virginia Woolf. Um, he loves Brahms and he loves Baldwin. And I also very much appreciate your intriguing perspective on kind of the borders and overlap and interplay between subjectivity and objectivity, fiction and nonfiction, how these are kind of fictional care, uh, uh, categories. So um, I'm not going to do any, any more formal introduction than that. Let's just plunge in to the conversation. All right. Okay. Good. Um, you grew up, uh, and I think that this is very poetic, between Lagos and Kalamazoo. And uh, I actually happen to know Kalamazoo, yeah. and I think it is one of these weird secret centers of the universe. A lot of roads lead back there, so... All mine do, yeah. All yours yeah, do. Yeah. <laughs> so you were born in Kalamazoo, yeah. and, um, and then your family moved back to Lagos. Yeah. Um, your first language was Yoruba. Yeah. Um, and you... We're a Nigerian citizen, but also an American citizen because you were born here. Yeah. And I guess you were the only American citizen of your siblings. Is That's that right? right. Um, and then you went back to Kalamazoo, which you described as home, strange home uh, for college. Yeah. Um, was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? I sense that there was, although yeah. I, haven't, I haven't found you writing about it in any great detail. Yeah. Um, hello. <laughs> Minneapolis. And St. Paul. Thank you. <laughs> um, right, so when you talk about all roads leading back to Kalamazoo in a, in a strange kind of way, um, a lot of the, uh, the spiritual grounding had had a lot to do with Lagos, but also had a lot to do with Kalamazoo. Mm. I was born there. My parents were Anglican, um, mm. which is, you know, Episcopalian here. Uh, they were Anglican. When they were here, they were Episcopalian. So when I was born uh, in Michigan, I was baptized there. Um, I was in Nigeria for 17 years, and in the interim, I got even more religious than what my upbringing was. And my early teens, I, I caught religion. And so that by the time 
I uh, came back to Kalamazoo for college. I went to Kalamazoo College. Um, I found that I wanted to be baptized again. Mm. This time on and my, was that on a more Protestant speed. tradition? Yeah, so evangelical, charismatic. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've been baptized twice in Kalamazoo. I'm never going back there again because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to risk a third baptism. <laughs> you know, um, the irony of a non-swimmer being baptized all these times. You know, it's it's, it's like asking for trouble. Um, but uh, this fervent religion yeah. uh, became sort of the center of my life when I was 13. In fact, it was, in a sense, a kind of a breaking away of the family, even though the family itself became uh, uh, steadily more religious um, as, I, as, I, as I got older, so that by my mid-20s, when I um, gave up on religion, um, they were devastated. Oh, okay. So um, you did. You once there's just this throwaway line somewhere that you were once a fervid teenage preacher like James Baldwin. So you actually had a preacher period too. Yeah, I mean, I think we all carry our secret um, debts with us, the things that we owe and we can't quite pay back. And one of mine is that I did convert a lot of people to Christianity. <laughs> Um, but what, I mean, what I have learned um, in the time since then is that what I'm up to is not an attempt to deconvert anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you picked up something sort of spiritual or religious in my work, it is because um, even after having given up the creedal belief, um, Something about the the language and the way it, it plums experience has remained intact for me. Right. You know, um, mm-hmm. one thing um, I do sort of know for sure is that um, uh, we all need a great deal of help, and uh, a lot of the help that we need uh, is in is in language, mm-hmm. is in the language that has sort of been boiled down to a quintessence. Um, so that it's potent and effective. And I, I continue to find a lot of that language in religious and spiritual traditions, as well as in literature and poetry, mm. in Homer, um, without centering it on statements of belief, mm-hmm. but centering it on experiences of insight or consolation. Mm-hmm. And I sense the theology, the story, the poetry that these traditions carry forward. Well, I mean, I think wherever human beings have sort of gathered and with great seriousness tried to think through the predicament of being human, um, wisdom emerges. Um, it's not always helpful in its totality, simply because it emerges out of human processes as well. Um, but there is something all the way from cave painting to the church. Um, there is something about when we confront or to the modern theater, absurdist theater. There is something that emerges when we confront what it means to be here. Um, 
that if we are tuned in with enough precision, um, we might emerge with something that can help us and that can help other people. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's there in cave painting, and I think it's there in Samuel Beckett. And mm-hmm. otherwise, we don't necessarily think of them as being in the same category, but for me, they are absolutely in the same category. Um, you know, one of the um, pieces of language that I, that I find you use that I actually found really useful in, 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 in um, appreciating the breadth of your work and the breadth of influences is you, you said, you know, religion um, became, creedal religion was no longer meaningful to you. And politics, which, you know, which we all engage with as a matter of course and which you engaged with when you went back to Nigeria um, and here in your writing, holds a lot of disenchantment, mm-hmm. even while it's important. But you said that you always, you always retained a faith in a, a cloud of witnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, that became one way for me. And I actually, you know, I, I've also said something similar to what you just said. I, I think I said it to my colleagues recently. Like one thing, one thing that makes spiritual life possible, and I mean that very expansively, mm-hmm. is, uh, is that is, is, you know, what Christianity calls the cloud of witnesses. Like every tradition has these lineages of teachers that we're not alone mm-hmm. and that there are teachers across time and space. And I find that you really commune with many teachers across time and space. Um, mm. And I, I met a lot of people in, in getting in digging into your work. Uh, you speak of Thomas Tranströmer, Swedish poet, who's one of your ports of refuge. Um, uh, you, you said something. I'm, I'm, always, I'm always interested in how people describe what poetry works in us. And of him, you said the poet, the poems remember us, and if we are perfectly still, give us a chance to catch sight of ourselves. Can you say a little bit about him? Just this yeah. person. Um, I'm going to go back to a word I used uh, earlier, which is how much help we need. Yeah. Um, we sometimes think of culture as something we go out there and consume, you know. Um, and this especially happens around clever people, smart people, you know. Have you read this? Did you check out that review? Do you know this poet? What about this other poet? You know, blah, blah. Um, and we have sort of these check marks. You know, I read 50 books last year, kind of. Um, and everybody wants to sort of be smart and, uh, and, and keep up. And I find I just, I'm less and less interested in that and more and more interested in, what can help me and what can uh, jolt me awake. And very often what can jolt me awake is, is stuff that is written not for noonday, but for the middle of the night, mm-hmm. you know? And that, that has to do with, the, uh, again, with the concentration of energies in it. Thomas Tranströmer, the Swedish poet who died, I, I can't remember, maybe 2013 he died. Um, he was, I don't know, maybe 13, 2015, I, I can't quite remember. He seemed to have unusual access to this membrane between um, this world and some other world uh, that, as Paul Eloi said, is also in this one. You know, Eloi said, there's mm-hmm. another one, there's another world, but it is in this one. 
So the other world, not as something out there to go, that you have to go fetch, but as something that is somehow present. And first of all, you have to locate the membrane and then see if, you know. And Transtromer in his poetry keeps slipping into that space. He, he was sort of a practitioner of what in the 60s uh, sort of been dis- described and defined as deep image, mm. where there's certain, uh, a certain use of language that um, suddenly opens up a seam of feeling and association. Um, I'm not too convinced that, you know, deep image it's, is it's its own distinctive thing because I think when poetry works, very often it's working in that way. It's working like a trapdoor mm-hmm. that just it plunges you into a reality you were not anticipating. In any case, I just found his work uh, precisely the kind of thing I wanted to read in the silence of the middle of the night and feel myself escaping my body in a way that I become a kind of pure spirit in a mm. way. Um, I remember when he won the Nobel Prize, which was in 2011. And uh, we live in an age of opinion, and uh, people always have opinions, especially about things they know nothing about. So people who were <laughs> hearing about Transtromer for the first time that morning were very grandly opining that his collected works come to maybe... 250 pages, that how could he possibly Mm. get Mm. uh, the Nobel Prize for that um, slender body of work? Um, Which, of course, was missing the fact that each of these pages Mm -hmm. was kind of a searing of the consciousness that was only achieved at by great struggle. I think the best thing to compare him to is the great Japanese... Japanese, um, Poets of haiku, like mm, you know, mm. Kobayashi or, or, or Hok- where every uh, word carries so much or, more than one word. Exactly, right, exactly. Right. Um, and as a writer, I know exactly how hard it is mm-hmm. to get there. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we, you know, um, as Mark Twain said, uh, sometimes writing uh, letters to people who say, um, "If I had more time, I would have made this shorter." <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> I think Karl uh, Marx was supposed to have said that about Das Kapital as well. Oh, there, yes, yes, <laughs> exactly, you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but this idea that somehow Transtromer found the time to make it as short as it needed to mm. be, that's mm. the miracle in mm. it. So for many winters now, he is actually the primary poet I read through winter to get me through winter. Oh. Keep James Baldwin is also in your, powerfully, in your cloud of witnesses. Um, And I think this essay, Black Body, that begins um, Known and Strange Things, was that, that was first in The New Yorker, I believe? It was first in The New Yorker. Yeah, I'm sure I I read that in The New Yorker, I don't know, 2014? Exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, He said, which I, you know, he would have turned 90 that year. Um which was interesting to set him in time like that. Mm. Um, you quote him in this Swiss town in, in which he was writing, at Leukerbad, uh, ringed by mountains, saying, in all of this, 
in, w- in which it must be conceded that there was the charm of genuine wonder and in which there was certainly no element of intentional unkindness, there was, there was yet no suggestion that I was human. I was simply a living wonder. This is how the people of that place received him and his black body. Um, but you, you reflect on how... Um, the children and grandchildren in, in that world and this one are now connected in a way that both familiar, creates familiarity and also alienates. But, it, but you are at home in this, in this new reality. Hmm. Um, how it's, do a you... little bit, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah, well, um, it's very complicated. Well, it's 5,000 words complicated. <laughs> <laughs> um, Robert Frost read a poem and uh, somebody asked him to explain what he meant and he said, do you want me to say it worse? You know? <laughs> Which is always a problem about, you know, giving a precy or a summary of what uh, one has written. Mm-hmm. Um, though sometimes there are things to, to say about the background of it. Um, what, the thing with that essay is that in the gestation of it, thinking about it, writing it, it ended up teaching me so much. The, the, the work of articulating what was going on in it taught me a lot about writing and it taught me a lot about thinking about race, mm-hmm. you know, which of course is not a simple thing. Um, there are like, there are little points in the essay where I kind of part ways with Baldwin, which was a bracing and necessary exercise for me also. But for the majority of the essay, actually, what I was doing was a kind of, um, it was a kind of ancestral respect towards Mm -hmm. him. I went to Leukerbad in Switzerland, where he had visited several times in the the 50s, because I had, over the years, I've sort of developed this uh, belief that if you really want to know what's up with something, um, I mean, you can learn a lot from the library, but ideally, just go there. You know, and sometimes I'll go places and I don't even want to interview anyone, but I just want to soak up the place and wander the streets and get lost in that place and absorb something into my body um, because all the sources I'm reading are not conveying that to me. So I, I made this complicated trip to this mountain village in Switzerland just to, to be where he was. Um, I had first heard about Stranger in the Village from a New Yorker article maybe about 20 years before written by Skip Gates, um, he had mentioned this. And I thought, you know, and he, met, he quoted that first line, you know, from all appearances, there would be no black, no black man had ever set foot in this village until, until I arrived. You know, that, you know, this idea that on this planet, yeah. there could be this sort of like first man on the moon, first black man in the village kind of thing happening in the 50s. And I thought to myself back then, one day I will go there. Okay, so file that away. And then I find myself in Zurich. I find myself invited to Zurich to be there for a while. And when I say yes, I'm thinking, maybe I'll go there. And I start thinking about it. But even from Zurich, it's not a straightforward journey. You know, it's like a train and a bus and another bus. It's like the better part of a day to, to get to this village. And then I finally go there. And then I write my first draft you know, um, 
Baldwin writes about, Leukerbad, and he writes about the U.S. Racism in Europe, racism in the U.S., his feelings as a black man and his experiences. And what he finds is that European racism is kind of, it's obdurate, but it's simple. You know, ooh, you have funny woolly hair. Mm -hmm. You know, like, mm -hmm. oh, does that, you know, does that color come off? And he found that American racism, of course, was sort of very complex and insidious. Um, and in my experience in 2014, sort of rhymed with that as well. So mm, the main ideas were then the first draft. But rarely have I ever written anything that for me was so complex because I, th I took that piece probably through about 16 drafts. Mm. Um, to the point where I was, I, was, I was sleeping with sentences and paragraphs and not a single sentence survived from the first draft to the final draft of that, of that piece. And I, I was turning the whole thing around in my head. You know, when you get that intimacy with a, with, a, with a piece of writing, when you're very, very deep into it. Okay, fine. It was published and, you know, and then I realized that when I did the essay collection, it had to be the first one. It had to be the first essay, mm -hmm. in part because it, 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 it sort of starts uh, in the middle. I, in fact, can I read the, the first yes. line Yes, of it? absolutely. Um, and I, I'm, I'm sort of fond of things that um, begin in medias res. Um, my novel, Open City, begins. And so when I began to go on evening walks last fall, I found Morningside Heights, an easy place from which to set out into the city. You know, and this idea of, and so, a, a story is continuing, you know. And this book begins, then the bus began driving into clouds, and between one cloud and the next, we caught glimpses of the town below. It was supper time, and the town was a constellation of yellow points. Mm. And then, mm. so, then the bus began driving into clouds, starting in the middle. Um, but about, um, just three pages into the piece, I have a passage about sitting in the bath in Leukerbad, in my hotel, listening to Bessie Smith, <laughs> yeah. playing on my computer, because I know that James Baldwin carried his Bessie Smith albums with him. We connected him back to the States. And I, I start describing this moment of identification with, with Baldwin, you know, um, about the church, about being a childhood preacher, about um, being animated in person but cool on the page. Yeah. Um, <laughs> except for when it's the opposite, yeah. about my gap tooth, about my slender frame, and so on. And a very strange thing happened to me two days ago around this passage. I was at, um, I was at the funeral in, in New York State, uh, north of the city, uh, for Philip Roth. Yeah, right. And after the service, a woman came up to me uh, who was a friend of his, and said, I was hoping you would come. Um, I had met Philip, and, but I didn't know him very well. It was more, I admired him and I sort of wanted to honor him by being there at the funeral. Um, and, and she said, 
I hoped you would come because, and she had known him since the 50s. She said, the, uh, the last conversation I had with him at the hospital, he, he wanted to discuss your essay, Black Body. <sighs> and he said he was particularly moved by the passage where you were having a body double ex experience with James Baldwin. And, and she was telling me this while a few minutes after we had just put earth in his, in his grave. And the grave was right there. Oh, that's amazing. So, I mean, I think those things um, certainly give me a, a, a sense of great fortune in um, being part of a conversation about literature. But it also um, gives me a sense of responsibility about getting to that 16th draft in case someday, okay, Philip Roth might be reading it and have it be one of the last things he ever reads. We simply don't know where our work is going to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, there's something very poignant in that, um, in that piece where you describe Baldwin observing these people, these Swiss people, and the fact that they are not strangers anywhere in the world. This is you writing. The most illiterate of them is related to Dante, Shakespeare, Michelangelo, Da Vinci, Rembrandt. Out of their hymns and dances come Beethoven and Bach. And he, he said, I was an interloper. This was not my heritage. Um, and, and yet you say, I am not an interloper when I look at a Rembrandt portrait. That was a hard line to write, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's one of those moment, those few moments of divergence, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, maybe you wouldn't be shocked to hear that I was attacked for it, because we also don't do very well with moments of divergence, right? Mm -hmm. We're always expected to be sort of worshipful. Mm -hmm. um, and to say that when I'm looking at Rembrandt, I'm not an interloper does not mean... I underplay the power of white supremacy. It means that I've, I value in a way that I find life-saving for myself the principle of being human at a deeper layer mm -hmm. than the idea of being a political being, which is already a, quite a deep layer. Um, the wonderful Louise Erdrich, who lives here, um, told me that uh, there's a Lucretia by uh, Lucrece, yeah, Lucretia by Rembrandt at the at the museum here. So I, I think we're going to go see it together. Oh, good. <laughs> um, and so if we find that we're interlopers, I'll, yeah. I'll let you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's, I think there's got to be, I w no, there's got to be is wrong. I think it is absolutely possible to be stubborn about what you want to 
participate in. Because only you know better than anyone else what saves your life. And I know that a lot of white cultural production is is underpinned by white supremacy and the history of Europe and the US vis-a-vis the darker nations. But I also know that what we think of as the divine moves from vessel to vessel. Mm. And that what we achieve as human beings is always in spite of how, I just realized I'm speaking uh, you know, on, on being, so I can't use my usual swear words, right? That, well, actually, you can use them, but it's public radio. That's the problem. Uh, we, but okay. we can bleep them, so. All right, so in spite of our fuck-ups... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, glad yeah. I got that out. Jeez. I've been sitting here how long? Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's usually, you know, about one swear word per it's paragraph fine. for yeah, me. Okay. Um, in, in spite of, you know, how wounded and broken and messed up we are, the divine finds a way to express itself in us. And so we look at these past artists and they're racist, misogynist, homophobic, anti-Semitic. Um, well, number one, the work happens in spite of them. Mm. And number two, future generations are going to judge us just as harshly. Our blind spots are not solved either. And we have to proceed in tolerance for our ancestors and sort of seeking the forbearance of those who are going to come after us and know some things better than us, mm-hmm. but not all things. I, I sense that you, you know, that, that James Baldwin is someone you, he's, you have a conversation with him across time and space. You, ha, you, ha, you, were, you were having a conversation with him as you wrote about him. <laughs> And I, I, I'm, this essay was 2014. Um, I, I am curious uh, how you, because I, f- I feel like his voice is rising up all over the place. People are rediscovering him, right? His words are out there in a new way. Um, I wonder how you sense he might be speaking or would speak to this moment we inhabit. Mm. Is that on your mind? Very often, you know, somewhere he said, and it's a terrible thing to misquote James Baldwin, but I'll give you the gist, since since the the artificial Google chip has not been released to a general audience yet. um, Did you guys see this? There's there's a thing where you can just think of the thing you want to Google, and it reads it back to you. (sighs) We're moving very fast, yeah. MIT. That's one of the things you write about is the loss, the loss of forgetting. The loss of forgetting. One of the things well, we're yeah, experiencing yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get, the, we'll get to that in a second. What we lose by being able to look everything up everything, or have yeah. Google deliver it to our Oh, it's a tragedy. So anyway, yeah. I can't look this up. But he says something like, to be black and relatively conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. Let me revise that. 
To be relatively conscious in America is to be in a constant state mm-hmm. of rage. Mm-hmm. As somebody else said, if you're not mad, you're not paying attention. So I think a lot about what fury has met, meant to me in the past year and a half and in the past eight years and in the past 25 years since I moved to this country. But I also think about and this this one is a bit more complicated about what his words do in our discourse. He's very quotable. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I worry about quotation as a form of escape, you know. If everyone's so woke, why are things so terrible? <laughs> you know, um, societies are very well, complex. There's waking up and then there's living differently. Right, but being woke is also different from being from waking up because yeah. it's a performing, knowing the right things to say so that you don't get attacked. Mm-hmm. Um, but the responsibility actually goes deeper than that, you know? Like, what does it mean to seek justice? So I think of, about that in relation to him, and it connects to a further thought, which is that in his lifetime, he had this early success, and then, you know, he lived, he didn't live long enough, but he lived into some, a bit of old age. He really fell out of favor, you know? I mean, he was sort of set up for it. He was black, grew up poor, he was queer, you know, and he was independent-minded. And, you know, white people attacked him, black people attacked him. You know, people thought he wasn't going far enough in his radical ideas. You know, people thought he was going too far. Um, it was incredibly stressful. He, could, he couldn't live here. And it wasn't only because of racism. It was also because people on the left were attacking him. So I think what I learn the most from him is not that you can mine his work and find that quote that fits our progressive positions. But what I learned from him is that taking truly progressive positions can be devastatingly isolating. Mm. Mm. If everyone is woke, you may be called on to be something else, something a bit more difficult than that. Um, If we live in an environment where we take the right opinion for granted, as a given, oh, everybody knows that, maybe you're called on to explore the ideas that not everybody knows because the ideas that everybody knows are what have, those are the ideas that have given us the current situation. Where we are, right. Or the current dynamic. Um, And when I think those thoughts, I have to say, I get scared. Um, Because I, I, I mean, I take some unpopular positions, but I don't know if I'm psychologically 
resilient enough to go through what people like that went through. I've appreciated, Risa, you've been speaking about um, how, as a writer, you think about generosity and hospitality, which to me feels like you moving towards this this realization um, that you want, and you that you don't want, you don't just want to be writing for people who read the New Yorker and the New York Times. No, right? Which is is also part of the dynamic that you're describing. It's like we have to get out yeah. of all of these spaces, even the ones we love and admire, and and that pay well. <laughs> Well, right. Uh, so when I mean, you publish real, a short real, story on Twitter. Yeah, real talk. I mean, for somebody like myself, yeah. if I wanted to only do paying gigs, I could do that. But then that shows up in the work in a certain way. So I have to do some paying gigs and some gigs that are resolutely not paying gigs. Can I read you a very short thing I wrote today? Yes, please do. Yeah, after I got off the plane. Where is it? On your phone? On your device? Yeah, it's on my Instagram. Just think one day it will be attached and you'll, it will just, you will be able to It'll push a button and it will right go straight here. to the back interior. Yeah. Though there is more to say about that thing about memory and machines. I'm very afraid of the machines. But, you know, philosophically speaking, there's an argument to be made for theory of mind that says that anything that helps us remember is also part of our experience of the brain. You know, um, searching something in your brain, searching something on a machine, actually have more in common than we might think. But that's that's very complex to argue. But I wrote this today, and um, for a long time now, but very definitely since January one of this year, I've been thinking about hospitality because I wanted a container for some things I didn't know where to put about the present moment. Who's kin, who's family, who's in, who's out? And just thinking this whole year about the question of hospitality has given me a way to read a lot of things that are very distressing in in Mm -hmm. this country and in the world, around the border, but also around domestic policy. So this one sort of goes against the grain, but I needed to put it down. The extraordinary courage of Lassana Batili, an immigrant from Mali, saved six lives during a terrorist attack at a kosher supermarket at the Port de Vincennes in 2015. He was rewarded with French citizenship by the French president, Francois Hollande. But this is not a story about courage. The superhuman agility and bravery of Mamoudou Gassama, an immigrant from Mali, saved a baby from death in the 18th arrondissement in May 2018. He was rewarded with French citizenship by the French president, Emmanuel Macron. But this is not a story about bravery. The superhuman is rewarded with formal status as a human. The merely human, meanwhile, remains unhuman, quasi-human, subhuman. The already human to be granted humanity in this arrangement 
must be superhuman. No, not merely superhuman, but visibly, demonstrably superhuman. Gassama crossed the Mediterranean in a tiny boat that was superhuman, but no one filmed that. He remained subhuman, and there was no reward. Such is empire's magnanimity. Merci, patron. Je suis tellement reconnaissant, patron. The hand that gives, it is said in Mali, is always above the hand that receives. Those who are hungry cannot reject food, not only those who are hungry, but those who have been deliberately starved. But soon come the day when the Hebrews will revolt and once for all refuse Pharaoh's capricious largesse. Mm. Hospitality. Mm. Because I wanted to think about this beyond what seemed to me too easy, the headlines. Yeah. The gratitude. Oh, he was heroic. He was like Spider-Man. Right. Well, is that he? And then the French government did a great thing and made him a citizen. Right. How did we get here? Why is this enough? How did we get into the position where he kneels down to receive the crumbs? Mm. If I was still on Twitter (laughs) and I wrote that, I I might get canceled. Yeah. Yeah, Are you familiar with this phrase? Getting canceled? No. Is that a a technical term? It's a technical term. I did not. I was not aware of that, no. Yeah. You get canceled when you're out of step with the general opinion. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like the the language of blind spot, which is... um, which is the title of your, well, it's, it's, it's a story you start telling in the last chapter of your book of essays. Um, and it's the title of your photography book. Um, yeah, you, and you write just in the, kind of in the epilogue, to, to look is to see only a fraction of what one is looking at. Even in the most vigilant eye, there is a blind spot. What is missing? That's also such um, a relevant question to throw out, this, this, even this perspective. Um, I mean, we, do, we are actually very aware of our, the rage, right, all around, all of our outrage, my outrage against your outrage. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're so um, attentive to what our, our blind spots might be. I, f- I find that useful language. Thank you. I, I, I find it very fortifying as an idea um, to think about what is not evident, what's not apparent. I have a real struggle, especially when I'm writing for The Times. Um, I have a very sympathetic uh, uh, understanding and encouraging editor who lets me get away with all kinds of things. But I'm always trying to lower the volume of yeah. my essays. 
very often I'm trying to write and not say more than than can justly be said. Um, I want to reduce the number of sparks. I want to embed hesitation and lack of mm. certainty in, mm. in it. Um, it's countercultural. It's countercultural, and it's yeah. and it's quite it's quite hard to write hesitation. Um, it's hard for me on a personal level because I have access to a certain kind of uh, eloquence, um, which I I must always undercut in order not to say more than I really wish to say. Um, can, you, can you give an example of a, an idea or a sentence or a paragraph you struggled with in that way? I mean, my latest essay was about violence in photography, and it was a kind of a close study of Susan Sontag and Ariela Azoulay, who, who wrote The Civil Contract of Photography, and, and a number of different scholars. And really, I mean, you know, I wrote a 2,000-word essay in the New York Times about how you got to look at all sides of the subject, you know? And I, and I think that was sort of appreciated by certain readers and certain other readers were kind of frustrated. Like, you know, somebody said, well, you didn't give me any more clarity on this subject. Because, you know, the, the whole point of the piece was saying almost everybody who's written on this subject has a final answer about it. And it turns out that for me there really isn't, you know. Um, and writing doubt can be hard, um, hmm. but I'm really committed to it. Um, to, to even just open the space where can we look at this, you know, another way? Can we can we be in this impasse? You know, like you know, I think my ideal dialogue is two people saying. You know, one person saying, well, I don't know, and the other person saying, oh, I don't know. And then the other person saying, I don't, I don't. In the past couple of years, for sure, my most used emoji is, which doesn't translate very well to radio. It doesn't translate to radio. So I'll describe it. It's a, it's a, it's, it's not a shrug, but it's the shoulders ra- raised and palms turned outwards in a gesture of search me. Yeah. Um, to which, of course, has been appended the right skin tone <laughs> emoji. You know. I, I think, but I think it's yeah. refreshing to name this. Because, what was that? What was that? Quote that it. What did you, you you paraphrase Baldwin by saying anybody who's conscious, to be conscious is to be enraged. in a state of rage. In a state of rage, and also I think to be conscious is to be confused right now. Absolutely. Uh, which yeah. is a to be conscious bit, is yeah. to be in a state of. Hmm. Rage. Strength of on behalf of the 
weakened. There's some things I'm still strong about that maybe you're weakened in and I have to be strong on your behalf mm-hmm. and vice versa. Mm. There's that us needing help. Right. But also to be in a state of kind of quiet sorrow mm-hmm. and knowing that there are things we cannot solve. And maybe that moment of contemplation, that moment of quiet sorrow is sort of the anteroom to what the solution someday could be. But without going through that space first, I'm, I'm definitely a critic of solutionism, you know. You know, when people sort of get on stage with a clicker and like seven PowerPoint slides, and they're going to solve Africa in, in 30 yeah, minutes. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it comes from maybe a desire to do something, but it very often comes from an unexamined heart and sometimes an unexamined brain. Um, and so I go back to the poets. You know, um, Elizabeth Bishop has no solutions for me. Mm. And Cranstroma doesn't have any solution for me, you know. But he's there with you in the middle of the night. Absolutely. And you hold that space. Mm. It's a beautiful Inuit word, kartsiluni. It means... Words are some of the ways that we know that uh, all cultures can learn from each other, and especially a culture that arrogates itself as already essentially knowing everything. Um, And then you encounter a word in another culture, and you think, damn, we need that. Kartsiluni means sitting together in the dark, waiting for something to happen. Mm. And, you know, I'm happy to have that be my new bio. Yes, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, why don't I want to just uh, ask one more question up here and then let's open it up for a few minutes and uh, see what's on your mind. This is, um, you know, we're not talking much about photography, even though you're here principally as a photographer, I think. With liquid music, but it's hard to it's hard to have a conversation about photography on radio, just like <laughs> right. It can be there are yeah. few things that are it's hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about visuals, but I do want to ask you. There's um. There's an essay, uh, a true pic- picture of black skin, in which you describe a photograph, which you said, left you short of breath the first time you saw it. It was a. It's called Mississippi Freedom Marcher, Washington, D.C., 1963. And you say it challenges a bias of mainstream culture that to make something darker is to make it more dubious. And you said these pictures make a case for how indirect images guarantee our sense of the human. I just think that's such an intriguing statement. I wonder if you would say a little bit more about what you mean, how indirect images guarantee our sense of the human. 
just find that anything really sort of loud and hectic can just can last for a moment. Um, but it does not necessarily get to that deepest place. Um, that place of self-recognition, which becomes indistinguishable from other recognition, which is continuous with world hmm. recognition. Um, and so I'm attracted in all the arts to those places where something has been quietened, where concentration has been established, mm. you know. Um, I think one of the great artistic questions for any practitioner of the art is how do you help other people concentrate mm. on a moment? Um, and so this photograph, it's a frontal portrait of a young woman um, but it, it's not a post portrait. She's in a crowd and he has photographed her. She's African-American, but her skin is dark and he has made it darker still in the way he has printed it. So that your first thought is, oh, could we lighten that a little bit? And then you think, no, 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 no. Why am I feeling this way about um, th th this image? You know, there's just something, it's, in all the arts, there are those moments that are as though somebody has made the gesture of raising a palm, which is not a stop sign, but a attend, hmm. hush, listen, you know. Um, about three weeks ago, Lincoln Center, I saw a performance of Das Lied von der Erde, um, a late symphony by Mahler. And the final movement, it's a symphony, but it's a symphony of songs. So each movement has a singer in it. And there are two singers and they alternate. The final movement is 30 minutes long. It's quite varied, but the main emotion of it is melancholy. It's a leave-taking of the earth. And I'd heard many recordings of this, powerful voices, either um, a baritone or um, a mezzo-soprano. In this case, it was a baritone. But he wasn't the strongest voice I'd ever heard. He wasn't the biggest voice I'd ever heard. Technically, he was secure, otherwise he wouldn't be singing this piece with the Berlin Philharmonic. But he didn't have the greatest volume somehow. But my God, the modulation in his voice. He wasn't straining for effect. The lines were just spinning out and you could just feel the emotion. He wasn't impressing you with his heroic presence. He really was like the voice of somebody who was leaving the earth and who was quite sorry to be doing so. Somebody who was thinking, oh, I'm not going to see another spring. I'm not going to see another fall. Um, 
And it's quite a thing to be in an auditorium with hundreds of people and tears are coming to people's eyes mm. because his voice was like, had left his body and all that was left sort of was the music, you know? Um, I think those are the moments we really live for in art, you know? Uh, the moment where the artfulness falls away mm. and all that is left is that thing we don't have a better word for beyond poetry. Hmm. Yeah. Where's the microphone? Do we have, okay. Everybody's speechless, I get that. Hello. Hey. I was wondering, um, you talked, uh, it's Patrick from our interview last week. Nice to see you. Patrick, thank um, you. We that spoke briefly about improvisation, and I wanted to hear a little bit how improvisation influences your photography and your writing. Um, on the blog for Liquid Music, um, I have a conversation with Patrick uh, that just went up a few days ago. And uh, I think we did a lot in half an hour. I'm, I'm very happy with it, so thank you very much and, and for the way you framed everything. And thank you, so check that out. Um, so the questions about improvisation and photography in particular. Um, I think the self is the preparation, you know, so that there's no such thing as pure improvisation. You come to it with what you are and how how much you have mentally prepared for what has not been prepared in advance. But mentally you have prepared for what may happen. Um, so when I go out with a camera, I don't know what's going to happen but I mean, it, it follows on from what I was just talking about, which is I'm looking for those moments that with insufficient concentration, I will miss. If I'm really there, I have a chance. I mean, uh, maybe it was Hemingway who said that, you know, 90% of everything is, of all writing is pig shit. Um, which I thought was kind of a generous estimate because in my <laughs> experience it's more like 99%, you know? But that's okay because 1% can accrue and then you have something worth keeping. So it's about giving yourself the chance, giving yourself the opportunity and using every possible trick to make sure that when it happens, you're there to receive, you know? So that's my approach to improvisation in writing, in talking, in um, photography, in music making, um, to be focused, to be there, you know? It's a privilege, it's a joy, you know? Never phone it in, 
be present to it because then something could ha- something might happen. You know, there's no there's no guarantees. Um, you know, there's this idea people have that. You know, when you're good at it, you can then just sort of bullshit it. But, you know, a great pianist said that, you know, if you don't, um, practice for a day, you know, if you don't practice for two days, the audience knows. Um, and there's, in all artwork, I think there's that, there's something that connects to what it means to practice. Even if it just means practicing being here in the work. It doesn't mean you have to sit down and meditate, but, but, but to know. I know this can very easily spill over into self-seriousness, and that's to be avoided. But I think it's actually okay to be serious about your work, because then it gives you a chance to do good work that could end up helping somebody. I have plenty of things I want to talk about, so if, if, you, if you all are out of questions, we'll keep going up here. Yeah. There we go. You got it? Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, I realize the question I have might come across as a little impertinent, given your concern, and I agree with it, over the kind of um, risk of overquoting Baldwin. Um, so I have a Baldwin quote. <laughs> um, and it's one that, as an art historian, that I've been, that's been kind of holding me accountable to my own um, practice. And I wonder, I'm curious to hear your response to the quote, and perhaps you know it, um, how you think about it as an art historian and as a writer. And the quote is, um, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions hidden by the answers. Hmm. And um, it appears um, in... Uh, Claudia Rankin's Citizen, page 115. <laughs> um, and I've been, I've been kind of obsessed with this for, for a couple of years now, and I wonder how that, how that strikes you. I didn't know that one. Um, he gives good quote, doesn't he? The purpose of art is to lay bare the answers, the questions hidden by the answers. Okay, so we unpack it. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think something's on my mind. um. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, shout out to the art historians. I'm one too. And remember when we remember when we got dissed for. You guys don't remember. It really hurt. But we know we're good. Yeah. So um, I had a conversation a few years ago with Elizabeth Alexander about poetry and um, what poetry works in us. And one of the things she said that I, I think about a lot, and I think it's, it's, in, it's, it's part of what you're saying when you say it comes down to poetry, is that Poetry gets at undergirding truths. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which is something distinct from mere fact. Mm-hmm. And um, you, wrote, you wrote an interesting article after, I think it was the Charlie Hebdo events in Paris, about how we were, you know, we, we have these moments where we talk about the crisis of free speech or the crisis of facts is what we're talking about a lot in this country right now. But, you know, you said this isn't, this isn't causing the crisis. We're already, we were already there. And in, in my mind, I feel like we were already, we, we have an impoverished, we've been work, working with an impoverished way of speaking about truth. We have a truth crisis mm-hmm. and, and the, not a fact crisis. And the, the fact that our fact, the fact that our facts are failing us, mm-hmm. the way we have received them, uh, is bringing it home, but I'm still not sure we're naming it. And I don't know, I'm just mm-hmm. curious how you think about that matter of truth and how you look at the way we're struggling now um, with, with, these, with these subjects. I mean, I think this is why my, my sense of sorrow extends beyond this present moment. I, I, mean, I, th- I think for many Americans on the left, there's a lot of nostalgia for the Obama years um, and for the person of Obama himself, who in very obvious ways is um, <laughs> I mean, compared to this Bulgarian um, thinking of a photo I saw this past week of a bus used by ICE to transport babies. It's a bus full of child seats with child seats when babies are taken away from their parents. We really want that photo to be a Trump-era photo, but it's an Obama-era photo. Does knowing that change the way we read that photo? That so many babies have been taken from their families that we need a bus equipped with child seats, an entire bus where you lock babies in. And you you mean that it's a consequence of policies that have been around much longer than the Trump administration? Well, I'm I'm certainly saying that, but Mm -hmm. I'm also saying we do get caught up in the personality mm-hmm. aspect of the game, which turns it into a game, which turns it into a, an entertainment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the blue shorts and, you know, on this side of the ring in the red shorts. Um, and sometimes that's actually necessary because we have to oppose what's happening right now. Mm-hmm. But there's a deeper thing in there somewhere. Um, art, poetry, you know, are those things that can maybe disabuse us of too easy an, a, a sentimentality about our relationship to the state, for example. Um, 
in a very real way, and maybe this touches on what Baldwin's talking about, art is on one side. Art in its essence and at its, at its deepest is on one side. And all agents of the state are on the other, regardless of political affiliation. And I sometimes feel like the most we can try to do is to do the occasional cross-border raid <laughs> and then get back and not get obliterated by merging this with this, which really has different priorities. Priorities that maybe in in the long durée, in the long term, we can collectively try to undermine and imagine a better world. But as it is now, and as we have generally known it, the priorities of the state are actually actually tend to be inimical to priorities of ethics and justice. Mm. Um, Dehumanizing. Dehumanizing Mm -hmm. is what states are very, very good at. Mm -hmm. Both the states we hate and the ones we kind of like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, And, and that can be hard for people to confront that. You know, and in fact, when you speak in such terms, people say, well, then you're not being pragmatic enough and we've got to make progress and all of that. And I say, oh, I'm plenty pragmatic. You know, I grew up under military dictatorships. I know horrible states and I know less horrible ones. Um, But I also know what their general tendencies are. Mm -hmm. And that we don't place our entire faith in states. We cannot. We cannot, right. You know. Right, which is a lesson being learned yeah. so harshly right now. Yeah. But I think you're saying it's a truth that is enduring and that applies also in times that feel less, less hard. I think there are truths that endure. Um, It's very confusing, actually, um, to know exactly how they do their work. Um, There's so much good work from the first half of the 20th century in all the arts, incredible stuff that will last millennia. And yet this was a period in which all of humanity seemed intent Mm -hmm. on obliterating itself. You know, just mass killing everywhere, like at a frenetic pace, you know, in the same period that gave us literature and jazz and painting and bold new moves and new things in poetry that were as powerful as the Iliad and, you know, the Mahabharata. We are both ends, right? We're both ends. We're not one thing. Well, I mean, you know, Virginia Woolf talks about the future being dark. Uh, Rebecca Solnit uh, cited this. The future is dark. And that's the best thing it can be. And the future is dark doesn't mean that it's bad. 
The future is dark means we don't know. And that itself is a consolation. Um, it probably is not going to be our very worst fear. And John Berger talks about the difference between optimism and hope. You know, optimism is, oh, well, it's all going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Wishful. Wishful thinking, yeah. you know, impractical. Yeah. But hope is this kind of, it's an arm you extend out into the dark on behalf of others to go back to this idea that in a moment like this, we all have different strengths, you know, you know, with all the privilege I have and all that is working out for me and all the access I have to certain forms of concentration, how dare I be hopeless? There are people who need the hope that I can convey. Even if that hope, even if I'm writing about something very dark, to take it through eight drafts, to take it through 10 drafts is an act of hope. Because you're saying, even in this moment, a well-shaped sentence matters. Because somebody could say, we're facing the apocalypse. Who gives a shit how well it's written? And my hope is that if it's written well, it might catch somebody's attention and be a balm for something that they're going through, if it's written well. Mm -hmm. And so I try, to, I try to write it well. I mean, this is bad. This is bad. I believe this is a disaster. But it's not yet the apocalypse. You know, Primo Levi was in the camps. Mm -hmm. And he talked about how he had to sort of face the fact that he, I mean, he was in Auschwitz. And he said, I didn't go through the worst. Because to have gone through the worst was to not have come out of the camps. The worst implies not living to tell the tale. This is somebody who saw hundreds, thousands of people killed for no reason. Who was starving, who was on the verge of death. And he said, and who ended up killing himself. And he said, I didn't go through the worst. And so we kind of have a collective responsibility recognizing that as bad as it might be for us, we haven't been through the worst. Because there was a young woman who was shot on the border last week for the crime of trying to be here with us. And she was shot in the head by an agent of our state. She went through the worst. We have not been through the worst. And so we have to keep hope alive in order to help each other. Um, I wrote, I made some notes, I, I, and, I, and I'm, in my notes it got disconnected from, it was one of your essays, but it was just these lovely things you were saying about us, about being human. There's these phrases, we are creatures of private convention, we are creatures with coasts. You didn't say it that way, but, right? We are creatures with vital enthusiasms. Vital or vinyl? I mean, both vital. are true, but... <laughs> I'm pretty sure you said vital. Vital, okay, tea. sorry, okay, vital, and, okay. And, a teacher, and, and creatures with touchstones, first encounters that form us ever after. 
Um, I wonder if I ask you this very large question, which is definitely a 5,000-word question, but just say, how would you begin to answer it now? This question, this, this, this existential question of what does it mean to be human? And how at this, I mean, I feel like you've been speaking to this, but like how, you know, with the life you've lived, this moment we've arrived at now, um, how, how is that evolving for you? How do you begin to answer that? now this is going to be my worst misquotation of the evening um But Toni Morrison talks about we die, and that may be the, does anybody know it? That may be the, like, length of our lives, mm. or, you know, mm. span of our lives. But we do language, and that may be the meaning of our lives. Something in that direction. And I think it, it is somewhere in there, you know. Um, a frank confrontation with the facts is that between t- two cosmic immensities of time, you're born, you flare for a moment, and you're gone. And within two generations, everybody who knew you personally will also be dead. Your name might survive, but who cares? You know, nobody's going to remember your little habits or who you were. So, the, you know, one meaning of our lives might be that we die. Um, but then the other is this other thing that has nothing to do with the noise out there, advertising, arguing on social media, <laughs> which we all, you know, can be tempted into. Um, or even our personal disputes, or even our anxieties, or even our struggles. But some other thing that is like this undertow that connects us to everyone currently alive, and everyone that has lived, and everyone that will live. So I think there's just a stark existential fact. I mean, it's not fashionable to take up labels or whatever, but I, I'm on some level, I'm sort of an ex- existentialist. I don't think it necessarily has a grander meaning. I certainly don't believe that, you know, God has a wonderful plan to make it all okay. I used to. I don't believe that anymore. You die. I don't know what happens. I mean, I talk to my dead. Um, I don't know if they're anywhere. Mm-hmm. You die, and it hurts people who love you. But then the other thing is that if there's no grander, larger meaning, in real time, there does seem to be 
a grand and large meaning. Right this minute, there does seem to be something that is real. That might not be meaning, but comes awfully close to it. To be sitting together in the dark of this political and social moment. To be sitting together in the dark of what it actually means to be a human being, even if this were a euphoric political moment. Mm-hmm. So there's the grim view of we're not here for very long, and LOL, no one cares. And then there's the other thing, which is when your favorite song gets to that part that you love and you just feel something, or when you've had a series of crappy meals and then finally you get a well-spiced, balanced, Goat biryani. <laughs> you know when the f- spices are really fresh? <laughs> black pepper. A lot of people get black pepper wrong. Really fresh black pepper. And you have this moment. So these moments of pleasure, of epiphany, of focus, of being there. In their instantaneous way can actually feel like kind of little nudge that's telling you, by the way, this is why you're alive. And mm-hmm. this is not going to last, but never mind that for now. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And it happens in art, and it happens in friendship, and it happens in food, and it happens in sex, and it happens in a long walk, and it happens in being immersed in a body of water, baptism once again, and it happens in running and endorphins and all those moments that psychologists describe as flow, you know. But what is interesting about them is that they happen in real time, you know. Um, as Seamus Heaney says, useless to think you'll park and capture it more thoroughly. You are a hurry through which known and strange things pass. Hmm. You know, you're just a conduit for that. But if you're paying attention, it's, all, it's almost, all, I'm, I'm not sure if it's enough, but it's almost enough. I'm certainly glad for it, <laughs> you, know? I'll, you know. I'd rather have it than not have it. What do you think? <laughs> Fortunately, I'm on this end of the question. <laughs> I think that was a tremendous meditation on that question. And I think that somehow we managed to circle back to a third baptism in Kalamazoo, so it's probably <laughs> where we should finish. All right. And I'm so I'm so happy that you came here it's, tonight, well, and that we pleasure. got to um, we got to att- be attentive, and it, we I, I you created this um, I think you created that space that you also described, and I suspect that everyone here will notice whether it's 10 minutes from now or tomorrow when they have one of those flow moments and perhaps 
enjoy it for just a second longer. So, Teju Cole, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.